the author of a fascinating new book about really one of the most fascinating actors in show business. It's called Rage and Glory, The Volatile Life and Career of George C. Scott. We're joined by author David Stewart, who also is the executive editor of uh, Backstage, uh, the publication and theatrical industry up in New York. And he joined us from New York today. And uh, David, thanks for being with us. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. Good to talk to you. How are things up in uh, the great city? I, I grew up just outside of it. Oh, it's, it's very cold and snowy. Still, oh, you got to come down to Florida during the winter. Yes. <laughs> well, David, I just had a chance to get the book yesterday, and I've been, I've been reading through it uh, before we had a chance to talk today. And, and I think we talked before, you know, when we set up this interview. George C. Scott, really one of my my favorite actors, uh, growing up watching him uh, on movies and television. And uh, how did you get involved with this particular project to write about? Well, um, the Scott was always one of my favorite actors. Uh, he had an off-stage life, which was just as fascinating as his on-stage life. Uh, he was married five times to four different women. He rejected the Oscar for patent. Uh, twice he put his own money into a particular project and lost all of it. Uh, once in, in a Broadway theater company that, that folded and once in a film that he produced and directed and starred in and uh, lost the, almost all of his initial investment. And also uh, the fact that there was no other book about his whole life out there. Uh, there are many books on stars like Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, Warren Beatty, but there wasn't one on George C. Scott. He had a, a tough upbringing, uh, just, uh, you know, being able to, to read about it. I always thought he was born in, in Michigan, but he was actually born, as it says in your book, in Virginia. And That's right. By, by chance, I guess his father went to Michigan to get a job in the auto industry, right? Yes, well, his father was, uh, in, uh, he was a surveyor in the coal mines in Virginia, and uh, it, during the, dep the Depression hit, and it, it, a lot of the coal mines closed, and a lot of, not just his dad, but a lot of people moved out of the rural south to the more industrial Midwest and North, and they moved to uh, near Detroit, and his father got a job in, uh, you know, on the assembly line, in the, in the tool crib. Uh, in, in Detroit, and eventually worked his way up to be an executive with uh, with a uh, with a manufacturing company. And uh, so Scott's early life was was very tough. And his father and his mother died. Scott's mother died when he was very young of peritonitis, of blood poisoning. And so he had a very tough, difficult upbringing. Yeah, I thought it was interesting uh, how you recounted when he was, I think, 17 or 18, uh, he had run away from home and he, uh, he joined the, the military. I guess he wanted to join the toughest part of the military, so he picked the Marines. He, he really wanted to go be part of World War II, didn't he? Yes, he, he did run away when he was a teenager, uh, but, not, but, but came home. And then, uh, after he graduated from high school, is when he joined the Marines at 17. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wanted to be in World War II and, and fight, but uh, the bomb, the atomic bomb was dropped, like, I think a month after he joined. And he had two years of uh, stateside duty in Washington, D.C. He hated that job too, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he was on the burial detail at Arlington. Uh, that was one of the one of his duties, and he always said that 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 depressing military duty of having to bury people uh, two or three times a week drove got him started on a very on a, on a lifelong drinking habit. And then he went to, uh, on the GI Bill, he went to college to uh, become a journalist, I believe, at uh, University of Missouri. So he was kind of going back and forth what he wanted to do at that point. I guess acting really wasn't in his mind at that particular point of his life, was it? That's right. He, he went to the University of Missouri to study journalism. And uh, 
he discovered about himself that he was just too shy. Journalists would need to ask. Uh, he just could not bring himself to do it. So he realized this was not the life for him, and he tried. He saw an, an audition notice for the college theatrical group to do a play by uh, Terrence Radigan called The Winslow Boy, and he tried out for the lead role and got it. And he, that sort of, uh, he always said that that sort of like a click went off in his head uh, when he got the, got the part and began acting and realized this is something that, that he can do. Talking with David Sheward, author of Rage and Glory, The Volatile Life and Career of George C. Scott. Uh, he tells some great stories in the book about his uh, you know, acting career and his personal life. Uh, just uh, his particular style of acting, you know, you kind of go back to his early years. Uh, the other people that worked around him, oh, you tell stories about, they felt better or they elevated their game when they were around him on the stage. I mean, he had that type of presence, didn't he? Yes, he did. Several several people I spoke with and people who I found quoted in other sources said that uh, he was just there from the moment he, he walked onto the stage uh, or, or onto the film set. Carl uh, uh, Malden, who co-starred with him in Patton, I interviewed him, and he just said that he was just there and ready to go and, and brought the whole electricity to, to whatever scene he was playing. He had that, that raspy voice, too. Uh, I, I don't know if he, I guess he must have had it early in his career on stage. I don't know, but his early film work, you can kind of see that a little bit in, uh, in, in The Hustler and Anatomy of the Murder. Of course, Patton, that, that's the voice everybody kind of associates him with, but he had that, that, that voice that really was memorable. Yes, and it, it, it's sort of funny. Uh, Patton actually had a high-pitched, kind of an almost squeaky kind of a voice. And when he was doing research for Patton, he physically... Uh, did everything to to resemble him, you know, from wearing a bald a bald wig, shaving his head, and wearing a bald wig, and even he had a dentist make different teeth so that he would look like Patton. He had putty put on his nose to make the nose look like him. But the voice, he he figured he would stick with his own voice, but that would be more effective. What was from your research was that his favorite part to play? I mean, was I know that was his most famous film, but was that his favorite uh, role to take over? Because he did do a sequel to it on television many years later. He was kind of unsatisfied with the movie. He thought it didn't show every aspect of him. Uh, he wanted, in, originally he wanted to do a film sequel, uh, but he couldn't get the student, it was like 10 or 15 years later, uh, and he couldn't get anyone interested in doing a movie about it, so he did get it done as a television movie. And uh, over, between the two, the, the original patent and the sequel, I think he was satisfied that he had done it the way he wanted to do it. I don't know if it was his favorite role. Mm -hmm. he, never, he had a sort of ambivalent relationship with acting. Uh, he would often say that, uh, like, like, when he had had a few drinks, that he really didn't like acting, but that he did it because because he felt that it was kind of an, 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 an not a very dignified way for a man to make a living, but that it was the only thing he knew how to do. It's similar in a way to, uh, I think Marlon Brando felt that way, didn't he? I mean, he really didn't think acting was a great way to make a living, although he was very good at it, right? S similar kind of attitude toward it. Yes, and they actually are the only two, uh, it's interesting you bring up Brando, they're the only two actors to have refused an Oscar. And uh, they did do one movie together called The Formula, which was uh, not a very good film, and it was more notable for the casting than for the end result.
Of course, George C. Scott, uh, one of those rare actors who succeeded in film and, and also on the stage. He did a lot of uh, work, uh, of course, in the New York theater. I never got a chance to see him. I know he was playing Sly Fox, I believe, was when I lived up in New York at that time. I didn't get a chance to see him on stage and, and other work, but uh, a very commanding presence even in his later years, wasn't he? Yes, he, uh, he always went back. To, he did not like film as an actor's medium because you had to wait. He, he, he would shoot scenes out of sequence depending on the convenience to the convenience of the production. Uh, it was really, and, and you had to wait for the crew and the director to set up all the shots, and there was a lot of waiting in between when you would do the acting. Uh, but he always went back to the stage because there the actor was in control. The actor comes on at 8 o'clock and the show starts and there's no interruptions except for the intermission and you do the whole show. The last, uh, well, his last stage performance was in a production of Inherit the Wind and he had lots of problems with that. He was dealing with, an, with an, uh, a potentially, well, what later became a fatal aneurysm, uh, an aortic aneurysm, which, which later killed him. And uh, a lot of physical ailments, but he got up and did the show and uh, I, I saw it and it was a tremendous performance. That was at uh, Tony Randall's theater, wasn't it? The Actors Theater. Yes, it was the National Actors Theater. Tony Randall, who had played in the original production in another part, uh, was his understudy. And at one performance, Scott uh, got up and said, I have to leave because he was feeling really sick. And uh, Randall was in the audience and uh, just left on stage and said, let's pick it right up. Wow. Uh, and, but unfortunately, Scott left the show uh, because he was being sued for sexual harassment by his former assistant. Uh, whether and and he uh, was told by his doctor, or he produced a medical affidavit from his doctor that said that if he were the stress could kill him. Uh, so he left the production, went to California. Randall took over the role, and unfortunately, they had to close earlier than expected, uh, which was quite a tragedy because it would have been uh, the, the first Randall's company was not making a lot of money, and this would have been the first hit that, that they had had. Talking with David Schuert, author of Rage and Glory, The Volatile Life and Career of George C. Scott. Let's touch on a little bit, David. Uh, you mentioned just there uh, you know, what he was going through at the end of his life. Uh, he was married five times, uh, tempestuous marriages for the most part, I would say, and, and not too great a relationship with his kids either, right? Uh, well, he had six children altogether, um, and I think when it really... Uh, the only incident, they were kind of reluctant to speak to me for the book, I think because there was a lot of ambivalence there uh, on their feelings towards their father. I did speak with his eldest daughter, uh, who was the daughter of his first wife, whom he named a young woman at the time named Carolyn Hughes, who he met at the University of Missouri, and they both wanted to be actors, and they were divorced after two years, and she did not get to know him until she was in her late teens and in college. So I think she was able to be object objective about him. And she regarded him as, you know, a, an adult friend when after she had reassumed re his acquaintance, shall we say. His, uh, his youngest son, Campbell Scott, is an actor uh, who's done a lot of theater and film and television. And uh, he is the son of Colleen Dewhurst, Scott, uh, third and fourth wife. They were married twice. And I think because uh, Scott left Dewhurst twice for other women, uh, he had sort of an ambivalent uh, feeling toward them. Uh, 
I'm Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids right here at home in the United States of America.